Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome all of you to this afternoon's panel entitled The Ethics of Profit, the Interplay of Bioethics and Industry. My name is Shirley Tillman, and I'm a professor of molecular biology here at Princeton, and I will moderate the panel. The inclusion in this symposium of the perspective of the private sector on bioethical issues could not be more timely. This was particularly evident this morning from Steve Fodor's lecture, in which he showed the powerful impact that the biotechnology industry in general, and Appymetrics in particular, is having on the field of genetics. He also gave us examples of the close and collaborative interactions that are now commonplace between the academic research community and the private sector. Finally, in an audience composed primarily of undergraduates, many of whom are training for careers in biology, I cannot help but point out to you that the fastest and grow, growing employment market for biologists right now is, in fact, in the private sector. Today's panelists are a distinguished group of scientists who have had broad experience in industry, government, and academia. I will introduce each panel member and ask them to speak for a few minutes. At the end of their four presentations, the panel will then entertain questions from the audience. Our first speaker will be Dr. Roy Vagelos. Dr. Vagelos is chairman of the Board of Trustees of the University of Pennsylvania, a post he accepted in October of 1994. Prior to that, Dr. Vagelos served as chief executive officer of Merck and Company for nine years from 1985 to June of 1994. He was first elected to the Board of Directors in 1984 and served as its chairman from 1986 to 1994. Prior to going to Merck, Dr. Vagelos had had a very distinguished scientific career at Washington University in St. Louis, where he studied the biochemistry of fatty acid metabolism. Our second speaker is Dr. Leon Rosenberg. Dr. Rosenberg is a professor at Princeton University in the Department of Molecular Biology and in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. He is also president and CEO of Funding First, a medical research advocacy initiative of the Mary Lasker Charitable Trust. He formerly served Bristol-Myers Squibb Company as president of the Pharmaceutical Research Institute and a senior vice president to sci for scientific affairs. Prior to joining Brister Myers Squibb, Dr. Rosenberg was dean of the Yale University School of Medicine, and he spent uh, his entire academic career at Yale, where he was a highly uh, distinguished human geneticist. Our third speaker is Dr. Carl Feldbaum. Carl Feldbaum is president of the Biotechnology Industry Organization, BIO, which represents more than 750 companies, academic institutions, and state biotechnology centers in 47 states across the nation. 
Prior to his appointment as president of BIO, Mr. Felbaum was chief of staff to Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania. He was also assistant to the Secretary of Energy and served as the Inspector General for Defense Intelligence in the U.S. Department of Defense. He received the Christopher Medal for his book, Looking, in the, Ti Looking the Tiger in the Eye, Confronting the Nuclear Threat. Our last uh, speaker of the day is uh, Dr. Audi Keo. Dr. Keo is currently Director of Research at the Institute for Ethics American at the American Medical Association. His current research focus on a variety of issues, including the uninsured patient-physician communication, the role of professional associations in the healthcare system, economic disclosure of financial incentives, and methods for allocating finite healthcare resources. Board certified in internal medicine, Dr. Keo is also a clinical associate professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. Please join me in welcoming these distinguished panelists. We will begin with Dr. Vagelos. Thank you, Dr. Tillman. I'm delighted to be here and was particularly interested to hear the uh, topic of our discussion, which I heard just five minutes ago. <laughs> and so I'm really ready to go. Uh, <laughs> the ethics of profit, the interplay of bioethics and industry. First, I'd like to address, first of all, you should understand that I was head of, of Merck, as uh, Dr. Tillman just told you, uh, for a number of years. And so I, I knew something about profits. Um, and, and <laughs> what about ethics? <laughs> and you might be interested. I, I hope you'll come to my lecture this evening, so I'll tell you something about the ethics, too. <laughs> so let's, let's back up and, and talk about a couple of things that might interest you. First, uh, uh, how does one price a product, a pharmaceutical, a prescription drug product, and how do you do that? You know, is it a, do you do you count up the amount of money that's spent in research and development, uh, and then you look at the cost of actually producing uh, the tablet or the injectable product that's going to be sold? And the answer is uh, uh, neither of the two. Uh, what you what you do is that you know that the average cost of research and development for a product that comes to the market it, across the industry is some something like four hundred million dollars. So there's a huge cost uh, to producing a product that enters the market. You should also understand that most basic research projects in any company, even the largest ones like. Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, or Merck, uh, most of the basic research projects fail to produce products. So it's a very small number that, that make it. And then if you look at all the products that come onto the market over a long period, it's a very small fraction of the ones that come onto the market that actually uh, pay for the research and development that was invested in them. 
So how do you price a product? First of all, uh, you'd like to understand what, it, what contribution it makes. And I'm, I'm talking to you now about the mechanics of having a product in hand. You've studied it for 10 years. You're about to put it on the market, and you say, what should the price be? You'd like to know what the value is. Are you keeping people out of hospitals? Are you keeping them alive? Are you keeping them out of hospitals? Are you keeping, are you reducing the numbers of doctor visits? Are you reducing the cost of ancillary medicines? And so you look at the economic side. What contribution is your product going to make? That's really critical. Then you look at the market. Are there other products on the market that are like yours? Is there a product where your product is 10% better? That tells you you could have a price that's a little bit higher. Um, if you have a product that is as good as, but no better than, the pricing obviously is going to be, have to be very similar. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, if there is no product on the market and it's a true breakthrough, the first drug that reduced blood cholesterol and reduced coronary heart disease dramatically, the first vaccine that prevented hepatitis B that was 17 years in research and development and prevents not only hepatitis B infection, a viral infection, but chronic hepatitis and liver cancer, where there is no treatment before and no other preventive. Uh, the first drug to prevent glaucoma uh, in, without causing side effects. These things were their first on the market. Uh, the first drug for st uh, preventing or stopping peptic ulcer disease, which is so widespread. These are drugs that have come out really all during your lifetime and have come out of the pharmaceutical industry, largely in the United States, from these huge, huge investments in research and development. Now, the success of the industry and the ability to, to continue as an active company depends on the repeated flow of new products that come out of a process that may take 12 to 15, on the average 12 years per product, huge numbers of dollars, long-term investment, and success. Because there are lots of companies that are putting in the money which are going down the tubes. They're not successful. And that's why you're seeing a consolidation in the industry, mergers where one company is fusing with another, very often two shaky companies getting together and shaking together for the, for the future because two weak companies usually don't make a strong company. So there's lots of that going on in the industry. Okay, now where, does the, where do the ideas that fund the, uh, that, that give the knowledge on which the pharmaceutical industries gets, gets their early work, they come from government investment in universities. And this comes normally from the National Institutes of Health and, and the uh, National Science Foundation. 
Now, if you take the entire entire funding of the National Institutes of Health, which is the big, big, major part of funding for basic biomedical research, uh, this year it's going to be what about 13 billion, maybe 13, 14 billion. Uh, the 15, 15 billion. Uh, the total research and development expenditures in the United States are probably, I would say, 50% more than that. Now, how does all, you know, is it fair that industry can, can take I, ideas that are bubbling out of the pure basic research going on in universities, focusing on a project, an industry, and then getting all the profits from that? Does that make sense? And the answer is, of course, it makes sense, because these companies then pay enormous taxes. And these taxes, of course, are funneled wherever you like, but they could be put back into the National Institutes of Health. At Merck, the research and development annual expenditures were roughly equivalent to the taxes paid to the US, in, uh, US government. Okay? So when, when Merck succeeds and makes a profit, part of that pro profit, of course, goes to pay taxes, and those taxes go back into, get, go to government, which can then fund the National Institutes of Health, which makes new information available from which the industry can select areas to focus on and, and, and try to make medicines. And so the machine sort of feeds on itself. Uh, in the United States, it's exceedingly uh, effective. Some companies are doing incredibly well. And the, and the, I would say, the end result is, is explained in the new products and the effects on diseases that you see being knocked off uh, one after another. I, I would say that perhaps the most recent example being HIV. And if you'll just think back in 1981, I remember this very well because Merck was introducing a vaccine at that time when, when AIDS was first identified as a problem. And, and then you saw the geometric rise in the patients with AIDS and, and the, the problems that they looked forward to. And the, and the problems were uh, chronic debilitation, increasing debilitation, hospitalization, and death. And then the focus of the industry on first the reverse transcriptase inhibitors and then the protease inhibitors Billions of dollars poured into research and development, ultimately coming up with drugs that in combination can at least alleviate the disease. They don't cure it. But without this profit motive, huge, a very highly risky investment business, without the pro profit motive, they would not be willing to spend those kinds of dollars in that amount of time and, and give you the results. And so we have the example of both a profitable industry, a uh, taking, uh, interacting with government funds, uh, going to universities, interactions between university scientists and, and, and uh, industry scientists with products that really make a difference and are changing the health in the world. So I think it's a pretty good system. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Rosenberg. 
Well, what I'd like to do is um, go on a bit uh, with a characterization uh, of the pharmaceutical industry and then talk about a few uh, particular uh, ethical issues that I see at the interface between uh, industry and society. Um, Dr. Vagelos has sketched out for you uh, very nicely um, the nature of the industry. Uh, I'd like to just add to, the, to that characterization. Um, the pharmaceutical industry is not only large and successful, uh, it is ferociously competitive. Uh, no company in the industry has more than about 4.5% of the market share uh, of all th of the pharmaceutical business, uh, which means that there... <laughs> Sorry. 5.5. Five. <laughs> Guess who that is. Uh, but but to... By the way, I, I, I just want to observe here that... Um, we're speaking in decreasing order of age. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, five point five is the is the market share. Five point five percent of the of the highest company, which means since there are many, many successful pharmaceutical companies that still makes for an incredibly competitive industry. In fact, um, I people characterize the pharmaceutical industry uh, as being ferociously competitive. Uh, I've even heard people say that it is, is really dog-eat-dog, dog, which of course uh, contrasts with academia, uh, where it's uh, just the reverse. <laughs> That's good. Um, another interesting uh, part. Uh, another interesting thing uh, about the pharmaceutical industry uh, is the, the the dynamic tension between the research side uh, and, and the business side. It, it's one of the most interesting parts about being in a big company. Uh, it's, it's yin and yang uh, at, at their very essence. If R&D doesn't produce exciting new products, then the sales and marketing organizations don't have good things to sell. And if the sales and marketing organizations don't do a very good job of, of selling the exciting new drugs that, uh, that they have, then there is not going to be the, 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 uh, the sales and earnings that will allow money to be plowed back into R&D to the tune of a billion and a half dollars a year at places like Merck and Glaxo and Bristol-Myers Squibb in order for the next generation of new drugs to be created. So it's a very interesting uh, interface uh, in every company between uh, the scientists and the business people. Uh, mostly that tension uh, is uh, controlled at the, at the right level. Sometimes it's not. Um, I think it's important to realize that, uh, that the pharmaceutical industry really does take seriously um, what kinds of, of products it makes. Uh, it, it does see itself as a health industry. Uh, it, does, it does believe that there's something different 
about being uh, in, uh, in the world of making drugs to cure people, to prevent disability, than, than in, in other kinds of businesses. And I think there's always needs to be a reminder. There always need to be people in companies like Roy always was uh, at, at Merck uh, to point out that this was a health business, uh, which is different from, uh, from other kinds of business. Uh, and then finally, I would, I would point out uh, the, um, that the relationship of this industry with government uh, is really quite different uh, than the relationship that academicians have, that, that scientists in academia have with government. In, in academia, uh, the agency that is the most closely associated with what biological scientists do uh, is the NIH. And the NIH is seen as a benevolent patron uh, in the main uh, of, of what uh, biomedical scientists do across the country. Uh, it sponsors their research. They, in turn, make up the study sections. There's a very close, but I would say a very, um, in general, comfortable uh, and interdependent relationship. Collegial as well. The relationship between pharmaceutical companies and the FDA uh, doesn't have many of those characteristics. <laughs> uh, the, the FDA is seen as it is, as a major regulatory agency to assess safety and efficacy of every new drug. It is a hurdle. It is a series of hurdles at, at every level. And the relationship between uh, pharmaceutical companies and the FDA looks uh, nothing to me uh, like uh, the relationship that I used to remember between the NIH uh, and biomedical scientists and universities. Now, let me just throw out what I consider to be a few uh, of the major ethical uh, issues that, that, I, that I experienced, uh, the, some of the dilemmas that I encountered when I was head of R&D uh, at Bristol-Myers Squibb. Uh, and I don't intend to develop these in any detail, but I, but I hope that some of them may uh, generate some questions later. Uh, the first uh, is the issue of orphan drugs, or if we want to put this in the form of the ethical dilemma, the medical need versus the commercial return. Uh, you heard Dr. Vagelos talk about how expensive and how risky it is uh, to develop a new medicine average cost of $400 million, average time of 12 to 15 years. Uh, every large company, therefore, looks to common diseases uh, rather than rare ones and looks to study them first in adults because that's where the largest commercial marketplace is, is going to be. Um, the orphan drug laws, I would say, offer only a very modest incentive. Uh, and so... Uh, we, have a, we do have a problem in the country. What are we going to do to provide incentives to companies to uh, develop new medicines that will never have a peak market value of more than 100 or $200 million a year, which is nothing like what blockbuster drugs for high blood pressure or reducing blood cholesterol can generate? I think this problem is going to get more severe for a while before it gets better. And I think it's going to get better because of what you heard this morning from, from Steve Fodor. My prediction is 
that when, um, when genomics uh, and profiling and pharmacogenomics particularly become really applied, and I don't think that's going to be as quickly as he said, but when it is, it will really transform pharmaceutical R&D. We will develop drugs differently. We will not develop a drug for hypertension as if everybody's hypertension is the same malady. We will develop drugs for hypertension according to which genomic or genetic risks are identifiable. And so we will develop drugs for hypertension A and hypertension Z, and, and we will not expect any of those drugs to be, quote, blockbusters of a billion dollars a year in sales or more. That is when orphan diseases and orphan drugs uh, are going to change because maybe everything will become an orphan disease. Uh, hypertension will be subdivided and therefore, and as will depression, as will, uh, as will um, many other things. Uh, I, I think you, you get my point. Uh, but, but today, the issue of orphan drugs uh, and orphan diseases is a significant issue in any major pharmaceutical company. How much to spend toward indications that cannot possibly provide the return on investment that other medicines can. Um, as, as important, and I'm going to say very little about this because I know that uh, Dr. Vagelos intends his remarks tonight to focus on this. Orphan populations. The development of drugs for disorders found largely or exclusively in poor or developing countries. Uh, I, I believe this is among the most pressing problems that, uh, that uh, our society has to face in the world of, of medicine and health. What is, the, what is the obligation of the United States uh, to uh, consider diseases like malaria uh, or dengue fever, uh, diseases that essentially no one in the United States has, and yet we know that diseases travel. Uh, AIDS should, should have taught us that if we ever had any reason to wonder about it uh, before. And dengue fever is traveling as well, and, and those won't be the last. Uh, so for self-interest as well as public interest or international interest, this matter of who's going to develop the drugs for people in the countries that can't pay for them uh, is a huge issue. Where are going to be the incentives for Merck or Bristol-Myers Squibb or anyone else to develop drugs uh, in, in the developing world? Uh, because without those incentives, uh, I do not believe the drugs will be there. Uh, whose responsibility is it to identify those incentives? Uh, the shareholders of these large companies are, are not particularly uh, tuned in to the notion of, of an international conscience. What they want to know is should they hold on to Merck stock uh, or, or sell it and buy Intel? Uh, there's, there's not too much romance or sentimentality that is associated with those kinds of decisions. And so we have to, we have to think about them uh, as we think about uh, matters uh, as they relate uh, to, uh, to industry uh, and to ethics in, in, in the broadest sense. Um, finally, uh, 
the, the individual's right to medicine versus society's need to set rigorous standards. Um, I, I heard many times when I was uh, at Bristol uh, that, that the company had a responsibility to make a, a, a drug that was being tested available to people according to a compassionate use protocol. Uh, didn't matter whether it had been tested in enough patients to be sure that it was safe and efficacious. After all, if it was for cancer uh, and people were dying of cancer, the issue was uh, where, where it, are the lines related to compassionate use? I believe it is one of the vexing problems in, 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 in the industry. Uh, it, it is very difficult for any company to provide on any basis at all medicines to people uh, when they have not yet been proven safe and efficacious. And most of us would say that, in fact, is what the FDA is all about, that until a drug has been certified as safe and efficacious, the public ought not to be exposed to the risk uh, of, of harm. Uh, and yet we hear regularly, uh, but we have a life-threatening disease and, 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 and my, my wife or my sister or my son is going to die uh, if, uh, if, if we don't get uh, this, this compound, will we'll be prepared uh, to exonerate the company of, of any risk. Uh, it's not that easy. Uh, and and uh, many of us would think it shouldn't be that easy, but we don't really know um, uh, how to deal with this uh, in any effective across-the-board way. So the, the, those are just a, I would say, a small set uh, of the kinds of, of issues uh, that anyone uh, who is in a leadership position in a pharmaceutical industry raises, and I hope we'll have more time to talk about them later. Thank you. Now the, um, the kids get to speak now. Um, <laughs> I, I don't... I don't. I actually don't know how old he is, <laughs> but I think uh, you were right. Um, I, and I don't. And I don't mean to contradict Shirley, but um, I am not emphatically uh, not a scientist, and I have a biology degree from this institution to prove it. Uh, <laughs> I am. I'm essentially the, uh, the industry's uh, lawyer, and if I can go this far, it's politician in Washington, which leads me into what, uh, what bio does, which hopefully will inform uh, some of the questions. And I apologize to my preceptees for going over uh, some of this again. Uh, bio, or the Biotechnology Industry Organization, represents about 800 biotech companies and about 100 academic institutions. And essentially what we do again, a terrible word, we do the lobbying for this uh, industry in Washington. We deal with the Congress. Uh, we take such as it is and take it as it is. Uh, we deal with the White House uh, because of the unusual amount of drama that comes out of the biotech industry. I spend a great deal of time talking to editors and reporters uh, about, uh, about what the industry does, about uh, biomedical issues, about research, and it should come as absolutely no surprise, uh, much of that time 
has taken up speaking about uh, bioethics issues. Now, I just got here late yesterday, and I haven't been privy to all the subjects and, and, um, and events that, uh, that you've attended. But in looking at your program, you've been, you've been hit with lots of stuff, uh, lots of issues of genomics and bioinformatics, uh, xenotransplantation. Um, what I'd like to do uh, just very briefly is just take a, um, the view, as I see it, from about 20,000 feet, uh, if you will, and, and, and hope to provide some, for some of you, an organizing principle, because this, this is the way I organize some of my thoughts about uh, dealing with bioethics. Uh, and in doing so, again, I apologize to my preceptees, but let me, let me go back, as, as often these things happen, to something that happened to me personally, uh, a, a, an old story, a very old story. I was a, I was a kid, um, a fourth grader at uh, Winwood Road Elementary School in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. When I went into my teacher's room, Miss Morrow, I was uh, delivering a paper or a test. I don't really recall what it was, but... Nobody was in the room, empty. And there on the teacher's desk was her grade book, lying open. And uh, I saw it, and uh, yes, I walked up to the desk and I looked at the grade book. And there on the left column were all the names of my neighborhood friends. Uh, Bill Tildes, Joe Grulick, Earl Holtz, Margie Satinsky. And there were their grades. But there was a column next to their names, and it was uh, labeled IQ. And I went down the list. Now, first, of course, I looked at my IQ, uh, such as it was, and then I looked at, and then I photographically memorized everybody else's IQ. And then I ran out of the room. Uh, but a couple days later, I felt sufficiently disturbed uh, that I talked to my parents about this. And I got two very different reactions. Uh, my mother said, Carl, you, you, you know you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have gone in there. You shouldn't have looked. But let me tell you something about, about that information. It's not reliable. It doesn't say who, if you're a good person or not. It doesn't predict whether you're going to succeed or not. It may not even predict whether you're smart or not. It's just the results of a test. And whatever you do, never, ever mention that again to your, your friends. Don't talk about it, ever. And I took her advice for 40 years until I started telling this story in the context that, that we're about to go into in, in terms of bioethics. My father had a very different take on this story, on this information. He said, he said, son, my IQ is three points higher than your IQ. <laughs> 40, years, 40 years later, he confessed that his IQ was three points lower than my IQ. But the point of this story, of course, is that uh, certainly that was information I should not have been privy to, but I have to believe it greatly, enormously affected my teacher's view of me, her view and expectations of each one of us in that class. That information, I thought, was just tremendous, and thinking about it now, tremendously, uh, potentially damaging. There seemed to be no controls over it. I mean, it was in her grade book. Uh, who knows where else that information went? I don't know, but I, you know, just randomly came in there and, and discovered it. Uh, to this day, I can't get some of those numbers out of, out of my head. Um, I, don't, I still think they're probably not reliable looking back 40 years on what happened to some of us. But the point here 
is that in terms of genetic information, as we learn more about the human genome, and as we begin to decipher our own personal genomes, we are going to need rules of the road, how that information should be handled. And this will largely be the responsibility of your generation. In the next century, and just, just remember, individuals born today in the United States and in parts of Europe may live into the 22nd century, 22nd century. And part, a great part of the 21st century will probably be taken up developing a right of privacy that Steve discussed earlier today. Who gets to see that information? Do you get to decide first whether you want to see it or don't want to see it? Some people do. Others would rather not. Where does it go then? Does your health care um, organization get it and you don't? Are you able to be discriminated against in education or employment or insurance? Right now, as this, these probes are beginning to be developed and are coming out of the pipeline, we need to develop regulations, rules, and eventually laws. My own theory, which I expounded at, at uh, ad nauseum at lunch today uh, to some of my fellow presenters, was that I think within five to seven years there will be a piece of civil rights legislation, national civil rights legislation, which will answer some of the questions that I just raised. And the industry needs to be a part of it. Academia needs to be a part of it. Bioethicists need to be a part of it. People who have strong religious and social convictions uh, need to be a part of it. It's going to be one of the major endeavors uh, of the 21st century. And if we're talking about bioethics in the new millennium, uh, I believe that uh, uh, this, is, this hits the main aorta. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Kao. Thanks. As you guys can probably suspect, I was the uh, late-inning pinch hitter for this panel based on my dress. Um, as I've been listening to my uh, panelists uh, talk about this issue, I think I'm going to look at the issue from the ethics of profits of nonprofit organizations and their relationships to industry. And I'm going to take it uh, using a case study example, a personal case study example. Uh, I started work at the American Medical Association approximately 18 months ago. And the first day of work for me at the Ethics Institute uh, was the day that the story broke in the Chicago Tribune about um, endorsements of Sunbeam products by the American Medical Association. Uh, just very briefly about this issue, uh, the American Medical Association is the largest physician organization in the country. And um, with good intentions, they entered into a contract with Sunbeam, whereby uh, they got royalties and were allowed to put into Sunbeam. This is the maker of uh, toasters and blood pressure machines and health-related products. Um, beyond the, the royalties, the AMA w was allowed to put in public health inserts into these devices. Um, in trade-off of that, um, Sunbeam uh, got permission to use the AMA logo, which uh, had never been sold before uh, in its 150-year history. And one could imagine the uproar that came from this uh, circumstance. Uh, 
uh, among physicians, among bioethicists, among even lay people, uh, about uh, endorsing sunbeam products um, exclusively without testing. And again, the motivations behind the AMA's uh, entering into this contract was uh, to get funds for public health efforts. And um, despite these good intentions, I mean, they clearly were in the wrong in terms of uh, pursuing this industry collaboration with Sunbeam, who shockingly, uh, their CEO is known as uh, Chainsaw Al Dunlop. I think he's been fired, I think, <laughs> more recently. But he, he, he was known for downsizing companies, and that was his reputation. So the Chicago Tribune piece had, you know, the AMA's CEO and then, you know, good old Chang saw Al Dunlop hugging him, basically, as, as, the, as the front page of the Chicago Tribune. And you can well imagine a person who had come from academia to work at the Ethics Institute. That was the first uh, day of work for me. So um, uh, it, it was clearly crisis management at the interface between <clears throat> ethics and, um, and industry in a big way, in a way that uh, teaches you a lot of lessons. Um, I think the first lesson, I think, is that um, uh, there are unintended consequences of well-intentioned people that enter into agreements. And that clearly was the case here. Uh, they didn't realize, to some degree, the uh, ethical, um, it wasn't even an ethical dilemma. I mean, there are very few black and white issues in ethics. I think this was not a difficult one to see uh, the, um, the uh, black and whiteness of it. But it also reflects the notion that, again, good intentioned people on both sides of a contractual relationship uh, can either be blinded to, be, be myopic to, or rationalize you know, for themselves to some degree, uh, the relationships that, that they enter for, you know, uh, for self-serving interests, for, you know, more macro interests, but that um, by agreeing to that, they again, you know, break certain ethical principles. And so I think that's certainly one lesson that I think continues to be played out to some degree in varying forms between uh, nonprofits, whether it's a professional association uh, like the AMA, and uh, industry. I think the second lesson is, uh, to some degree, is that uh, many of these mistakes or gray mistakes have a solution. And some solutions are more difficult to identify than others. And I think the issue that Dr. Rosenberg uh, you know, raised about uh, orphan drugs and populations, those are one of the difficult ones. But that but that uh, the idea of um, uh, sides being less, ad less adversarial in nature and working together on these problems, I think, is, is clearly um, the way to go. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case in the AMA versus Sunbeam. Um, uh, I'm actually kind of proud in the sense that I think uh, the Ethics Institute had uh, a small part in the ultimate decision by the AMA to break the contract. And that contract had, had not just clearly um, legal and financial consequences, I mean, huge financial consequences for the AMA, but I think that they did do the right thing 
uh, by not going forward. And I, I, I think I, you know, give them uh, some credit for that, for sure. Uh, but in, in response to that, I think they've been able to develop uh, checks and balances that I think, um, uh, if anybody wants the corporate guidelines, I'd be happy to supply that. <laughs> uh, but I think that these, the, these processes that have been established uh, can serve as a template and guideline for a lot of these um, relationships that nonprofits and industry have. And I think um, uh, it's, I think for, for, this, for this one case study, I think that uh, uh, the end result uh, may actually have taken this crisis and uh, given the AMA an opportunity to kind of, you know, go beyond itself to some degree, so. Thank you very much. Uh, the floor is now going to be open for questions. If I could take the prerogative of the moderator, I would like to begin by raising a question that hasn't uh, come up yet in the panel, and, and to begin by asking Dr. Vagelos to comment on this, but then ask other members of the panel to comment about it as well, which is the, um, the availability of research tools in the academic community. Has, uh, has changed in the time that I've been practicing biology, as in fact the, the speed with which discoveries in basic laboratories have moved very rapidly into applications in the private sector. Uh, there is a, 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 what to me was an absolutely fascinating example of this at the time of uh, cDNA sequencing when it became worrisome to the academic community that the rush to patent cDNA sequences was in fact going to impinge on the ability of basic scientists to in fact conduct their research in a free and open way. And one of the solutions to this problem uh, in fact came out of Merck, who in fact funded a very large sequencing effort in the academic world to in fact make that kind of information freely available. So I'd be interested, first of all, Roy, in, in, in hearing what went through the minds of Merck executives as you thought about funding that project and whether you think it's been a success. Yeah, well, that, that's a really good question because the, uh, there was a very tight squeeze at the time. And, and as Shirley just said, the cDNA information was going to be captured um, commercially and, and not made available to the general public. First, the major thing that happened at Merck was the immediate discussions that led us to believe that that information per se would only be valuable after a very long time and after enormous numbers of people worked on it. Um, and, and therefore, anybody capturing it would only be able to work with a very tiny slice and would be relegating the rest of it, uh, would, would have it as captive and prevent other scientists from getting to it. Now, the rules of our game at Merck was to do something about, about health, people's health. And, and we, we believed that by making the information available to all scientists, that we would contribute to the health of people in the world. We also thought that capturing it 
was not going to be very profitable. So we saw both the ups and the downs. We didn't think that it was that it was a good thing to do. And so we made a large investment in Washington University. And it, and it happens to be the university that I had, of course, spent nine years on the faculty of. But that's not the reason. The reason was that they had the manpower and, and had already started and, and had a proposal in front of us that said that they could do the work that was going to be done commercially. They could do it very effectively, and they would make it available to every scientist in the world. And that's what we preferred to do. Now, there was, there was a saying that, that, was, that came from George W. Merck, uh, and that was after the research organization was started in 1933 at Merck by the second George Merck. Uh, he made the statement as the company began to become very uh, prosperous that medicines are for people, not for profits. And that is a very deep cultural thing at Merck. He also added quickly that where we have been, if, where we have been fortunate in introducing important new medicines, the profits have always followed. And, and that is important also because it's only the profits that can be plowed back into the research and development. And so Merck believed strongly that the availability of C the availability of cDNA and 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 sequences ultimately to scientists in general was the best way to get get drugs out of it. Some of it would come from Merck, but every company had to have access to it and as as Lee stressed before, it's a very competitive industry with lots of good people working and and working not only competitively between themselves but also working collaboratively with people in universities. And so it's a great machine that needs to be, to be uh, stimulated and supported. Thank you. Lee. Uh, it, it turns out that this issue about the, the um, sequence tags and, and who was going to own them was, I think, the first genuine uh, ethical uh, crisis that I encountered when I went to Bristol-Myers Squibb. Within six months of my taking over as head of R&D, uh, I received a phone call uh, from uh, the person at the company who, who, uh, had, who had the, the sequence tags, uh, and he wanted to discuss with me uh, a deal in which we would become uh, the, his partner uh, to, uh, to have essentially ownership uh, of the uh, of the ESTs as they came along, uh, and um, uh, I remember very well going to visit uh, him, uh, and uh, after I heard about what he really had in mind, uh, I told him that uh, I thought this was uh, morally wrong, uh, that I wished he wasn't doing this at all in terms of wanting to sort of corner the genome, uh, and that uh, I really wasn't interested uh, myself, but that I would uh, endeavor to find out whether my company had any interest, even if I didn't. Fortunately, Bristol-Myers Squibb had no more interest in this uh, than I did. Uh, you could imagine that I might have had a trigger response on this because I'm a human geneticist, and I had worked in academia for many, many years. 
And the idea of somebody owning the human genome uh, sounded absolutely repugnant to me uh, on about as many levels as I could imagine. Uh, but the, the company's business leaders felt the same way, uh, and the deal went somewhere else, uh, and it never bothered me that it did, and Merck certainly uh, helped uh, assure that the, that the deal didn't really uh, uh, add greatly to the um, returns of the company that took it, uh, and I think it has all turned out to be in the best interests of the public at large, uh, and uh, and in the pharmaceutical industry in the long run, but that certainly wasn't clear when it was all happening. So we can open uh, the floor for questions. Yeah. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Matt Rowland from Yale University. Uh, this question is specifically for Drs. Rosenberg and Vagilis. Um I'm wondering about what you think about the influence that industry has on university research and other uh, supposedly basic science or pure science. Uh, Dr. Vagilis, you talked earlier about how the exchange between taxes going to the government and the government giving money to university researchers works, but what I'm wondering specifically about is not um, the government's interest in the research, but when a company is interested in a specific product and maybe they shop that idea around to researchers and maybe they offer additional funding when a lab is already receiving public money? Um, and what do you think about the ethical implications of that? I, I didn't catch the very last phrase you said. What do I think about the what? Uh, the ethical implications. Oh, yeah. Well, I think, I think this is something that uh, has developed really from way back, and that is that there has been collaboration by specific scientists at universities and, and, uh, and scientists uh, in industry and the industry will then invest in a, particular, in, a, in a particular area of research, funding a specific scientist. Now, in the good old days, uh, that resulted in, in a, uh, um, a, a patent that was usually owned by the company because they funded the research. This happened with streptomycin. Streptomycin was, was invented by... Um, Waxman at, at Rutgers on a grant from, from Merck. Uh, and he found this very interesting antibacterial activity, which turned out to be the, the first antibiotic that could control tuberculosis. Uh, that was essentially owned by Merck. Uh, Merck turned around and gave an enormous grant uh, to to uh, uh, Rutgers University and, and to Waxman. Uh, in fact, that, that money went to build the Waxman Institute. And so it was, so those, those were the good old days, uh, early 50s. Now, if you come forward, what is happening today? And that is, there are all kinds of, of, of agreements between scientists at, at universities, uh, their university, and a company. And so when, when something interesting comes out of that, it generally will be owned by the university. The, the uh, scientist will get a cut of whatever profits come out of it. The university gets a cut, and industry, of course, if they succeed, will also own, will, will get some of the profits. Now, 
is that, and, 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 and the end result is that one of these things really get going, these scientists sometimes will peel out and start a company. The example is the hepatitis, referred to hepatitis B. That work was done between Bill Rutter at the University of California in San Francisco. Bill Rutter came to Merck about 1978 or 9, and he said, Roy, you know, we'd like to do this recombinant stuff and with you, and, and would you fund a project in, in uh, our making human insulin? I said, no, go to Lilly. We don't do insulin. And, and he said, well, what would you do? Well, we are making, and we are at that time deep into the work in, in isolating the surface antigen of hepatitis B virus and making a vaccine from that. A, an incredibly dangerous uh, process because it meant we started with infected blood, which contained hepatitis B virus and the surface antigen, and we separated the two, and we ended up with a pure surface antigen. Anyway, Bill said he could put the gene into a microorganism and we could make it. We went through E. coli and ultimately yeast, and yeast became the producing uh, organism. He then, so it became clear that there was going to be a product. He therefore peeled, he took his information stepped out of the University of California, started Chiron, started Chiron at that time. This has been the major product of Chiron throughout their existence. Uh, the, the work went on collaboratively between the University of California in San Francisco, Chiron, and Merck. And, and the, a vaccine was developed, which was then marketed worldwide. And, and uh, uh, the university benefited, Bill Rutter benefited, Chiron was started, and Merck benefited. And the world benefited because they had the first recombinant vaccine and the largest recombinant product in the world today is hepatitis B vaccine. So I think, so it's changed dramatically. There's much more involvement of university scientists who are much more likely to think applied than they were 25 years ago. Today, the average university, I shouldn't say that, a large number of university scientists are willing to think of how they can apply their science to some kind of a product, whether it's in engineering, medicine, etc. And I've, I mean, it's, it's a new world, but I think it might be a healthy one. It's the real world. Lee, do you want to add to that? Well, I'm, <clears throat> I don't think I'm quite as sanguine uh, about that all as, as Roy is, uh, though I certainly agree that there have been uh, many good things out of this evolution. I think there are, uh, are times uh, when, uh, uh, when it becomes problematic. It is, it is not clear to me uh, that um, uh, an investigator quickly moving out of an academic institution uh, with, with work that has been supported by the government uh, and conducted in the academic institution to start a new company uh, and then gain from it personally without there being any of the gain shared with the academic institution which has nurtured and supported this person uh, it is hunky-dory. It, 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 I mean, the, the, there's usually an agreement in advance between the university and the investigator. Um, I'm sorry. There usually isn't, at least all the ones I'm acquainted with have agreements. So, that, for instance, in that instance, the University of California, University of Washington in Seattle, where Ben Hall was involved, 
and and the individuals shared the uh, the benefits. Uh, I I think Is that, that true? I'm yeah. not talking about sharing royalties. I'm talking about the equity. Uh, the equity issues where where the where the real money is i'm all for the idea of the academic institutions and the in, and the inventor sharing in the royalties whether it be a, a patent on recombinant dna or or something else i'm talking about the complexities of life for academic investigators mm -hmm. who have a lot of trouble knowing what conflict of interest and conflict of commitment are uh, and and who drag in some t sometimes their students and their postdoctoral fellows into relationships which are really uh, beyond the capacity of the student to understand them. Are they which hat are they wearing when they go into the laboratory? Uh, and I think these are things that need to be paid attention to on a case by case and institution by institution basis, not to stultify relationships between academia and industry for I believe that they are very, very important. But I think there should be uh, some real scrutiny uh, and, and ethical thinking on the part of, of, uh, of academic and scientists. In fact, I believe that the, that the ethical conundrums uh, in, in biomedical research today are much more severe on the investigator in academia who has much greater latitude and freewheeling capacity to do what he or she likes than they are of, of people who work in the pharmaceutical industry. You don't have to worry about conflict of interest if you work for Bristol-Myers Squibb or Merck. You're 100% full-time. You are not expected to be doing something else. Uh, and and uh, you, don't have much, you don't have much worry uh, about what is, what is appropriate in terms of your behavior. Next question. Uh, yeah, there we go. Um, There's a question for Dr. Vagilis and, and Rosenberg. Um, do you find that potential drugs or potential research projects with um, either potential beneficial consequences or um, some sort of good output there, but not necessarily great uh, potentials for profit or not necessarily immediate potentials for profits, you think in the industry and in the companies that these projects either don't get approved or don't get funded on the basis of their um, unattractive profit? So you're asking whether research projects are put aside because they're not likely to be large profit producers. I thought uh, Dr. Rosenberg really spoke to that to some degree, but let me just answer in another way, and that is if you had a company that worked only in projects that were going to be borderline profitable, you would pretty soon have an unsuccessful company. So the, the best mix is a company that has projects that are in the broad disease areas where they could have a big impact and, and be quite profitable. And in that company, they also would be able to afford to do projects that are smaller but important for smaller uh, disease groups, the so-called orphan drugs. And, and, and a good company will do both. Yes, over here. Um, I have a question for all four panelists, um, especially if Dr. Felbaum would like to talk about this. Um, 
There are a lot of ethical considerations that come up with the new developments from the technological industries like technologies and drugs. I was wondering who you thought has the um, right or responsibility to deal with the ethical considerations and possibly establish ethical guidelines for their use. Should it be the scientists and physicians who use them? Should it be the industrialists who create them? Is it government or do they get to share that responsibility? Well, <clears throat> it's a uh, good question. Who should, who should make the rules, essentially? Uh, not to over, overstate or oversimplify your question. Uh, in a focus group, uh, we, we do, a, because I can't afford to think I know what other people think about these issues. They're, they're really too profound on a personal level. We go around the country doing focus groups, talking to people who have uh, no high school diploma, others who have PhDs, people who describe themselves as uh, religious conservatives or fundamentalists, others who say they're non-religious. And they, um, they all, we ask them this question. And they're surprised to know that there is no group that um, actually makes rulings whether something is uh, okay ethically or not at this stage. And when we asked them, we asked one group uh, who would be qualified to do that, and they all looked at each other and they said, well, how about the United States Supreme Court? And the, the, good, part about that the good part about that answer was good that they, that, that they trust some branch of, of government. Um, the, the bad news is that the U.S. Supreme Court and the judiciary are wholly uh, unable and uh, right now not even authorized to deal with it. The, um, the, the question you ask has, has a, a, underneath it, really, we do not yet have the institutions in place to make these decisions. The, the President's uh, National Bioethics Advisory Commission is a great step in that direction. And take a look at who participates in that. There are people who have religious perspective. There are academics. Uh, there are scientists, there are ethicists, there are philosophers, and there's even someone from the biotech industry. So th this should not be commandeered by any one group. It's just too important, involves too many disciplines. Uh, part of the argument that some of the we were having last night and this, and this morning among the presenters uh, was whether there, should be a, uh, whether there should be a major in bioethics that combined the types of disciplines. There was a uh, some people, uh, most people thought no, but uh, I, I think in 10 years I, I would disagree with that. Um, but really we need the participation of whether you're studying classics or economics or mathematics or biology, you need to be part of this. And I was also wondering if Dr. Ko could share his opinion as an ethicist about this. Um, well, I think uh, I don't have too much to add to what uh, uh, Dr. Feldblum said. I think absolutely there has to be an open, transparent process that takes into account all the stakeholders that uh, have uh, some vested interests in the outcomes of these relationships, which include industry, academia, you know, the patient community. And I think that the, the process is, I think, what is going to bring credibility to any decision that is made. And so that any fair, transparent, non-black non box process, I think, is absolutely the way that these types of ethical decisions are best likely to be accepted. I'd just like to point out in this regard that uh, those of us who have lived uh, in, in the world of medical genetics for a while uh, remember very well that every few years since 1960, uh, there have been 
eruptions of ethical concern, whether they be about neonatal screening, or whether they be about uh, prenatal diagnosis, whether they be about gene therapy, whether they be about, uh, about cloning. Uh, and in, in, in a, it's important to remind ourselves that there were no, there were no laws passed on any of those issues. They were debated, they were discussed by society at large in the helter-skelter way that Americans do. Uh, and, and, and we found quite good resolution uh, about all of those technologies. Uh, and and I, I hope we won't feel that, that somehow the, the brave new world of, uh, of, uh, of chips uh, or clones means that we have to have a, a whole new set of legal machinery uh, to, uh, to keep us from, uh, from, from doing harm. Uh, I, I happen to have a great trust in, uh, in, the, uh, in, in the people of this country uh, to work through these kinds of matters as long as the issue really is kept uh, open uh, and transparent. Question back here. Hello. This question is for Dr. Kao. Uh, the AMA took 150 years to decide to license its logo. I wonder why now, and will you do it again in the future? Will I do it again? I don't think I made this. <laughs> uh, well, I think that's why I mentioned this, 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 this conundrum of profits of non-profits. I mean, non-profits, by its nature, shouldn't be concerned about profits but that they are concerned about uh, finite resources and constrained budgets. Uh, we don't do R&D. Uh, this is not what, do, this is not what the AMA does, but that they have other obligations, and that was the motivation behind um, these well-intentioned people signing this exclusive contract. And uh, why they decided to sell their logo, I think it's, it's, it's still a mystery to me, to be frank. <laughs> yes. Next question. Um, keeping in mind that uh, being profitable is largely dictated by the uh, consumer group size and uh, that we are well in a time before uh, specific genetic drugs, um, how do you think that the clinical trials that identify genetic responders and non-responders uh, to certain drug therapies will affect uh, drug research and the uh, drugs that will become available in the near future. Mark, no. do you want to take that on? Let, Please, leave. I, I, let me let me try this one. I I, I believe that um, that that this is one of the really exciting uh, opportunities uh, in the next 20 years, uh, because I think it is going to address this issue of orphan drugs in in, in a major way. When we, when we really are able to do pharmacogenomics the way Dr. Steve Fodor implied we will someday, we won't develop drugs for high blood pressure with the idea that everyone is going to take the same medicine. Uh, and we won't develop drugs for depression that way either. And what that means is that the pharmaceutical industry will ultimately not depend on uh, on one billion dollar blockbuster uh, to 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 shore up its its uh, financial fortunes, and I think it will change the way R and D is done. It will make it less expensive 
because you will target your populations in a different way. You will expect less from the drug in terms of the marketplace. Uh, and I believe that it will level the playing field in, in an important way about uh, what a company expects from its investments in research. The idea being that uh, four $250 million uh, sales figures will be seen as equally good uh, as, a, as a billion dollar drug. Uh, is that going to come uh, in the next five years? Not, not a chance. Uh, is it going to come in the next 15 years? Uh, I believe that it is. it will. Every major pharmaceutical company is generating the technology that you heard about this morning uh, and will use it to improve the way it is going to test uh, and, and, and do trials uh, on drugs coming down the road. And I think that's a very exciting uh, vista. Dr. Vagelos, do you want to comment on that? Well, I... I uh... I, I, my guess is that there will still be major drugs that will, because the, the ones we have, some of the ones we have are so darn effective and cover a broad spectrum of, of disease, and that these will not be displaced because of uh, understanding the genetics of individuals, and that there will, there will continue to be areas where one can have a major drug that affects a whole population that come under a... Um, a syndrome, a disease syndrome, which has different populations within it, but could be covered by a, a broad drug. The beauty of what uh, Dr. Rosenberg is saying is that if you can focus on specific populations, you might get specific drugs with fewer side effects, and you would certainly have. But, the, but what has evolved in the industry today and what people always miss is the fact that the drugs that are on the market are incredibly effective and incredibly safe because of the enormous testing that goes on. Now that will be that will be minimized, but it's but those the drugs we have today are really quite phenomenal. And and, and I'm very confident that with the with a greater understanding of the basis of disease, that the new drugs ten and twenty years from now will be equally exciting and, and uh, in the areas of neurodegenerative diseases and cancer and those things that we, we cannot control very well today, these will be controllable. And pharmacogenomics will, will certainly help. We have a question over here. Hello. My name is Mike Crozen, uh, Princeton 97. Um, this refers back to something that was brought up in Professor Steinbach's precept yesterday and mentioned today by Mr. Feldbaum. Uh, it seems in the near future that there's going to be a situation in which we're going to be able to decode our entire genomic sequence and have this knowledge readily accessible to us. And it goes back to this cognitive issue that was raised by Mr. Feldbaum concerning our right to knowing this genetic code of ours and the potential risks this includes, uh, this um, may have for us versus whether we want to know this or whether we do not want to know this. Um, I was wondering if you know, or from your experience with the federal government and with wor working with bioethicists, whether you can foresee certain conditions or certain situations in which a right to ignorance or either a right or um, almost a forced knowledge 
of one's genome might be kind of supported or backed? It's a, uh, it's a tough, uh, the answer, the short answer is yes. Uh, it's just interesting, and let me, let me just go back very briefly. Um, the right of privacy is a peculiarly American one. Uh, Louis Brandeis in 1895 wrote an article in the Harvard Law Review called The Right of Privacy. And he was thinking about privacy because of a new technological innovation. It was the box camera. Uh, beforehand, people had to sit for a, uh, a photograph. But with the advent of the box camera, you could actually take somebody's picture without their knowing it. So he started uh, thinking about the right of privacy, which, of course, has developed throughout the, the 20th century uh, to a stage. Now, here's a, a new technological development. You can take somebody's genetic portrait without their knowing it. Uh, you can go in for a cholesterol test or you can get a saliva sample or a hair uh, and, uh, and, and, and take their genetic portrait. Um, I think that uh, uh, my own guess is, I, I, this is not, a, not even a prediction, that uh, the right not to know would be part of the right to know. It's a choice. Well, I, just let me remind people that the, the right to ignorance in this world of genetics uh, is not, again, this isn't a, this isn't a brand new world. Uh, those of us who have done genetic counseling for diseases like Huntington's disease know perfectly well that there are plenty of people in families who choose not to know. And, and I, and I uh, cherish their, their right uh, to that determination. And, and, and there are many situations like that. I don't think it follows that simply because we're going to be able to do genes on a chip means that everyone has to know everything about themselves. Uh, and, and, I, and I doubt that uh, our society is going to impose that uh, anytime soon, uh, you know, Gattaca notwithstanding. I just comment on that as a uh, practicing physician, which I did for a while. I was always amazed that there were people who wanted to know everything about their diagnosis and other people who didn't want to know anything about their diagnosis. They just would rather not know. And I don't see that that would change. That's an individual selection. Talk about, talk about a disconnect uh, or an ethical problem or difficulty uh, in the system right now. In a survey we did with the AMA, 96% uh, of patients, when asked, said they would trust their physicians to give them genetic counseling, to tell them the meaning of any genetic test they had taken. Ninety-seven percent of physicians said they didn't know how to do that. They were <laughs> clueless. On that note, uh, I think uh, we will uh, close this wonderful panel, and I hope you'll join me in thanking this age spectrum. Before you leave, there is one short announcement. On behalf of the Bioethics Forum of Princeton University and our conference guests, I would like to take this opportunity to thank our panel speakers and moderator for taking their time this afternoon to join us and for sharing your insight. 
Also, I have a few instructions for our participants and facilitators. At 3.15 in Wig Hall, there will be a coffee break, and I believe it involves cookies, so you should go to the second floor of Wig and take advantage of the break. Your debate facilitators will meet you at the bottom of the stairs outside Wig at 3.35 to guide you to your debate classrooms. Facilitators also need to meet in Wig Hall um, on the first floor uh, main lobby for a brief meeting on this afternoon's debate sessions. Lastly, we found a lost pager outside of Wig Hall, so you can go to the registration desk and retrieve it. <laughs>